Um, Well, one of the amazing things about Christianity is that in Christianity, we promise that every individual, every individual person can have a personal relationship with God. Um, So on on the one hand, we understand what the astronomers tell us uh, about the incredible vastness of the universe, that there are a hundred billion galaxies in the observable universe, and that each of those galaxies has hundreds of billions of stars. And, and so we, we believe, you know, that's the reality, and, and we believe in a being that created all of that, a being who's so powerful that he made the vastness of the universe by speaking a word. Okay, so we believe that on one hand. But even more amazingly, on the other hand, we believe that that this all-powerful, immense, creative being who called the universe into existence out of nothing, we believe that he knows us individually, that he loves us individually, and that he desires to have a personal, real relationship with every one of us in this room. That's a truth that's really hard to wrap our brains around, I think. And so we often settle for less. But I don't want us to settle for less than that. I want every one of us, when we leave here today, to believe and experience a real relationship with God. A relationship with the God who created the universe that's just as real as the relationship that you might have with me, or with your spouse, or with your siblings, or with your parents, or your friends. A real relationship with God. To do that, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6 this morning. Matthew 6, if you're using the, uh, the black pew Bibles that are in front of you, that's page 811. It's Matthew chapter 6. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. And we're in chapter 6 as we go through the Sermon on the Mount. So it's page 811 in the black Bibles. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus explaining for us his manifesto, his, his vision for what the world should be like, what it looks like to follow after Jesus. And as, he, as he's been teaching us now, in chapter 6, we get to him showing us out some of the big dangers that get in the way of actually following Jesus and completing his mission. One of the big dangers is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, doing the right thing outwardly for the wrong reason, inwardly. And so last week, as we looked at this, we, we, we focused in on the first few verses in chapter 6, where Jesus speaks about giving And he points out that there's a danger to giving to those who are in need for the wrong reasons. So we shouldn't give to impress other people or even to impress ourselves. Look what a great guy I am. But we give because of love. That's the right way to do it. And now this week, the the focus shifts to prayer. In our passage this morning, we're going to see Jesus give us two warnings about how not to pray if we're going to have a real relationship with God in one right way to pray if we're going to have a real relationship with God. So our verses are Matthew 6, verse 5 through 13. I'm going to read it out loud and you can follow along as I do. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, 
For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is our passage for this morning. Um, Communication is the lifeblood of any relationship. Um, I was reminded of that in the last couple weeks. Where uh, you know, I had a couple more meetings in the evening than usual, and I was watching the NBA Finals, which took up a lot of time. And uh, I didn't talk to my wife as much as we normally do, and, and you could feel how that brought a little bit of um, strain into our relationship. It suffered because we didn't have as much communication as we usually do. And, and any relationship can suffer if you don't have communication. Uh, you, you need to talk to your kids. You need to talk to your parents if you want to have a relationship with them. If you want to have a relationship with your neighbor, you have to talk to your neighbor. You just got to communicate. It's not going to happen if you don't. If you've got a really close friend that moves across the country, you've got to make an effort to call or to write or do something to maintain communication or that relationship will drift apart. Okay? If you don't talk to someone, it's hard to have a relationship with them. Communication is the lifeblood of relationship. In prayer is communication with God. Prayer is the lifeblood of our relationship with God. It's a gift from God to us. It's a direct line of communication with Him that we can pick up at any time. So we can talk about whatever we want and grow closer to Him and experience all the benefits of a real relationship with Him. But unfortunately, we can settle for so much less than that. Instead of using prayer as a tool for a real relationship with God, we use it wrongly. And one of the ways we use it wrongly, Jesus points out right here, is using it as a tool for a fake relationship with God. This is the first warning of Jesus that we see in verse 5. He says, don't settle for a fake relationship with God. The hypocrites had a fake relationship with God. Look how they pray in verse 5. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, on on the one hand, they love to pray, but they don't really love to pray, right? They're not loving the prayer. They're loving pretending to pray. They like to stand out in the street corners and the synagogues stand up, say, look at me as I pray, trying to impress folks with how spiritual they are. They just want to fool people into thinking they have a relationship with God when they don't actually have a relationship with God. They're just putting on a show to impress people. It's like if I wanted to impress you, I'd arrange that when you came and knocked on my office door for an appointment, like right when you knock on the door, I'd pick up the phone and and start talking loudly. Uh, Yeah, yeah, LeBron. Yeah, I I know it's hard. 
He lost another finals. I know it's really tough, but uh, like I said last year, you know, it'll work out. Everything's going to be okay. Yeah, okay, I, yeah, come on in, come on. Yeah, I got to go. My next appointment's here, LeBron. All right. Yeah, I, I love your family too. Yeah, tell, tell them hi from me. Yeah, love you too. Yeah, okay, bye. Talk to you later. Yeah, sorry, that was LeBron James. Just, you know, he lost the finals again. He, he's, he calls me all the time when he's disappointed. I try to see him through it. You know, sorry. So what do you want to talk about? Okay, that'd be, that'd be ridiculous, right? Just trying to, to impress you. I have some sort of relationship with LeBron James when there's no one really on the other end of the line. And yet that's what these hypocrites are doing. So we do sometimes. We pretend that we have a relationship with God or that we have a better relationship with God than we do because we want other people to be impressed with how well we know him. This could be total hypocrisy. You could, you could just be acting like a Christian and not be a Christian at all. You could come to church, you could go through the motions, you could do the right things, say the right things, but it's all a fake. It's all a show trying to impress us. But it might be, too, that this is just periodic lapses into hypocrisy. You, you do have a relationship with God, but you kind of fall into this pattern of faking it, that it's better than it is. You know, like, like me, like I'm, I'm a genuine Christian, I have a real relationship with God, but I can still be tempted and fall into the temptation to make it seem like I know God better than I do or like my relationship is stronger than it is. For example, you may not be actively flaunting your prayer life like these hypocrites, going out in public and making big prayers so that people think that you've got a really great prayer life, but you may be happy to let people assume that your prayer life is better than it is. I mean, if they want to think I'm a great prayer warrior, well, who am I to disabuse them of that notion? You know, in a lot of different ways, we're happy to project an image of things being great between me and God because we want other people to be impressed with how good we have a relationship with Him. So it might be total hypocrisy, it might be periodic lapses into hypocrisy, but the point is we all fake our relationship with God in some way to try to impress other people, to act closer to him than we are because we want them to think of us as spiritual. Now, if that sounds like you at all, cheer up. Because Jesus offers something better than a fake relationship with God. And we'll get there. Before we get there, we've got to go through another warning from Jesus. He says, don't settle for a fake relationship. And he also warns, don't settle for a mechanical relationship with God. In verse 7, Jesus takes a break from the hypocrites to address another error that often gets us off track. In in verse 7, he says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. The key word there is um, the, the phrase, do not heap up empty phrases, which is variously translated in the different translations, uh, vain repetitions or babbling. It comes from a Greek word that it just means that, to, to say things over and over again in an attempt that, that, that you will hit on the right combination or say things enough that somehow then you will convince God to listen to you. Uh, the best practice of this that I know of 
uh, is illustrated in, in 1 Kings 18, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament. Um, 1 Kings 18 is a showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, um, the, the, the prophets of another god. Uh, and there's this showdown. The, the challenge is, uh, you know, they're trying to see who is the real god. And so Elijah gives them this challenge. He says, okay, let's, let's both kill a bull and put it on an altar, and then we'll just pray. And we'll pray, and we'll see which God listens and lights that sacrifice on fire supernaturally. And the prophets of Baal say, yes, we'll do that. Okay, so they go first. And they begin praying to their God. And here's what it looks like for them to, to pray. And this is the example of babbling, vain repetition. 1 Kings 18 Verse 26, it says, They took the bull that was given to them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, this is my favorite part, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he's a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be wakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. That's the pagan approach to God. Let's just keep babbling on and on and on until we get his attention do more and more extreme things. You see, they start cutting themselves, they're raving, going all over the place. Anything they can do to get their God's attention, to pay attention to him, it doesn't work. What they're doing is they're approaching God as if he is mechanical. You know, like the relationship that you might have with a vending machine. Not a relationship you have with a person, but with a vending machine. If I, push the, if I put the right money in and then hit the right combination of buttons, maybe give it a kick, I'll get the candy bar that I want to come out. That's the kind of relationship that you have with a vending machine. It's mechanical. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're putting their money in. They're praying. It's not working. Should I push in some buttons? They're praying more. They're praying louder. It doesn't work. They start kicking the machine. They're cutting themselves. They're raving. They're doing all sorts of stuff to try to get their God to respond, but it doesn't work. Because they're approaching him mechanically. And I wonder, do you feel like that in prayer? Do you have a mechanical relationship with God? Like you're down here, you've got your problems, you've got your needs. You love for him to help, but you don't know how to get his attention. You pray, but you feel like he's not listening. And so you wonder, well, maybe I'm not doing it right. Maybe I'm not using the right words. Maybe I'm not being loud enough. Maybe I haven't done something impressive enough to get his attention. And so you try to put your money in and you hit your buttons and you give it a kick and, and it just doesn't work. That is what Jesus is warning against in Matthew 6, 7, and 8. He says, when you pray, don't, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. He says, don't waste your time trying to get God's attention in some mechanical, mechanical way. Why? Because you already have it. You already have his attention. 
You don't have to settle for a fake relationship with God or a mechanical relationship with God because you already have a real relationship with God. He is your Father. He says your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. It's the kind of relationship Elijah had with the true God. The end of the, end of the story in, in 1 Kings 18 is Elijah takes his turn and and just to make things a little more dramatic, has a whole bunch of water poured on the altar. So it just seems unbelievable that anything could ever light it on fire. And he prays, and he prays simply. 1 Kings eighteen thirty six. Elijah said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Elijah just prayed. He didn't cut himself. He didn't dance. It didn't take him very long. But God heard and responded because he was always listening. Elijah didn't have to get his attention. God already had a real relationship with him, and he was waiting like a good father to give Elijah what he asked for. Now, it was not my master plan to um, preach this particular sermon on Father's Day, but it is providentially appropriate. Because the main thing that we need to get in our hearts today is that if you're a Christian, you have a real relationship with God and it is a personal relationship and it's as personal as the relationship between a loving father and his child. This Father's Day, we need to get it in our heads that God is our loving father. God is your father. If you're a Christian, God's your father. I mean, that is clearly what Jesus is trying to teach us in this whole section. In Matthew 6, 1 through 16, this whole chunk we've been looking at lately, Jesus calls God our Father ten times. And he calls him nothing else. It's the only name he gives to God during this whole passage. And over and over, it's your Father, your Father, your Father, your Father. He wants us to understand that the nature of our relationship with God is one of a loving Father to his children. It's not fake, it's not mechanical, it's fatherly. And, and I know, uh, I know in saying that, that that's not automatically a positive picture for everybody. Right? I get that. That we all have imperfect fathers, and, and myself included, I know that, that I am an imperfect father. And all of us imperfect fathers ruin the picture of God's perfect fatherhood in some way for our children. But Jesus isn't saying, you know, that God is exactly like your earthly father. He's saying that God is the best version of a loving father that you could ever imagine. He's the sort of father who notices the good that you're doing and rewards you for it. Sort of father who knows what you need before you ask it and delights in giving it to you. Sort of father who loves you with unfailing love and desires to be in a personal relationship with you. So Jesus encourages us, he said, don't, don't settle. Don't settle for a fake relationship where you're just pretending to know him. And don't settle for a mechanical relationship where you're just trying to put the right things in to get the right things out. Have a 
have a real relationship with God, with God who is your Father. So how do we do that? Well, this is where Jesus goes next. And he directs us, not to these false forms of prayer, but to a real form of prayer, a form of prayer that addresses God as Father and comes to him as a child. So after giving us two warnings, Jesus now tells us to pursue a real relationship with your father by praying like a child. Like I said before, communication is the lifeblood of a relationship. If you want a relationship with somebody, you need to talk to them. So if we really want to have a relationship with God, then we need to talk to God. And that's what Jesus invites us to do in verse 9. After telling us two ways not to pray, he says in verse 9, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These are really familiar words, right? This is the Lord's Prayer. But as, as we look at these familiar words, don't miss what this really is. Don't, don't get blinded by the familiarity of them. This is an invitation from your Father to enter into a real relationship with Him, an invitation to come to Him and talk confidently in His presence as a child to His Father. I mean, first of all, you see that the first thing that, that He says is, call me Dad. Right? You get that? He says, our Father in heaven. Jesus says, this is how you pray. Start off like this, our Father. When we approach God in prayer, we're supposed to call him Father. He wants us to do this. And this I hesitate to tell this somewhat embarrassing story, but I think it's helpful. Embarrassing to me. Don't, don't panic, family. Um, for years, when I was dating my wife, I didn't know what to call her dad. Right? Like, uh, I didn't feel comfortable calling him Mike or Mr. Klein. And, and, and you know, we were pretty close because, I, you know, Jen and I have been dating for a while, but I couldn't call him dad, right, because we were just dating. So I'm like, what do I call this guy? I don't know. So I decided to call him nothing. I just didn't address him as anything. I had no name to call him, so I just didn't call him anything. And obviously it got pretty awkward. It's hard to have a good relationship with someone when you don't actually call them anything. And so finally, one of the great benefits, there are many great benefits, but one of them, when I got married finally to his daughter, I could call him dad. And I could address him. And and I was a part of the family and I was welcomed in like another son, truly. And, And I think for some of us, though, we have that awkward relationship with our Heavenly Father. We don't know what to call him. How do I address the creator of the universe? I call him sir, Lord, Almighty creator of heaven and earth. Yeah, those, those could all be accurate titles, but they're all titles that create distance. Right? Separation. And God says, I don't want that distance. God says, when you talk to me, call me dad. Father. Our father. Hands down for me, this has been the most significant development in my personal prayer life for the last three or four years is learning to call God, Father. I always would begin my prayers before Lord or God, both of which are, are fine. But now when I pray, almost exclusively I call God Father. 
Because that's what he is. And it's revolutionized my prayer life and, and my relationship with him because it reminds me I'm not talking to some distant deity who may or may not be interested in what I'm having to say, who may or may not be paying attention, who may or may not be working for my good, but he's my father who cares and loves me and desires to have a relationship with me. And that's true for all of us who are Christians. So he tells us when we pray, call me dad. And as you look at the rest of the prayer, just see how childlike these requests are. The very next thing to pray is, hallowed be your name. Which can be confusing, but my paraphrase is this. Let everyone know that you're the world's greatest dad. Hallowed, hallowed just means set apart. It doesn't mean carving out the middle of something. That's hallowed. This is hallowed. To be hallowed is to be set apart, to be recognized as great. And we want God to be recognized as great. And, you know, these, uh, these world's greatest dad cups and t-shirts and things, they always used to bother me because I would think not everybody can be the world's greatest dad. Like, you can only have one number one dad. Uh, but that's not true, actually. Because you are the number one dad for your kids. You are their world's greatest dad. In fact, just yesterday, my kids voted me number one dad. Literally. And it's true in this family. And, and, and it's a thing with, with every child who, who loves their dad. You want everyone to know that your dad is the world's greatest dad. You know, my dad's awesome. So great. And this is the impulse that's captured here in the prayer. We're saying, Father, hallowed be your name. May everyone in the world know that you are the world's greatest dad dad and then we pray may more and more people come into this family in verse 10 your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we're a part of god's family we're a part of his kingdom we're loving it he's a great dad and now we pray father would, would you bring more and more people into your family may your kingdom come may may more people submit to your rule and to your your kingship May more people come into the family and begin obeying you the way we've learned to obey you. Oh, Father, may this be. And then we start to ask him. We say, please, give us what we need. Verse 11, give us this day our daily bread. What a childlike request that is, huh? I guess, actually, kids don't even really ask for this, do they? Just assume. You come to your father or your, your parents and you just assume, I'm going to get my daily bread. I'm going to get snacks. I'm going to get clothes. I'm going to get food and education. I'm going to get a house. I'm going to get medical care. Good parents provide for the needs of their children. And our Heavenly Father does the same for us. He loves us like a father. He knows what we need even before we ask for it. So we can be confident he'll take care of us. And, and in that relationship, we come to him as a child to a father saying, please provide daily bread. And then we ask, please don't punish us like we deserve. Verse 12, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Verse 12, yeah, forgive us our debts, forgive us our debts. Uh, we all do things that are wrong all the time. We deserve to be punished. We, we do. But God is not a sadistic disciplinarian who's sitting there with his ruler 
or a switch, just waiting for you to screw up so that he can take his pound of flesh out of you. That's not who God is. He's a loving father. He doesn't delight in punishing his children. He delights in forgiving his children. In fact, he loves us so much. This is the kind of father he is. He loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life in our place and to die on the cross to pay for all the debts that we incurred through our sin. So that God could still be just punishing sin. He's doing the right thing. He's punishing that sin. He's, Jesus is paying for it. But at the same time, God is forgiving everyone who puts their faith in Jesus. That's the kind of father we have. The father who makes a way for you to be forgiven, even when you've done so much wrong. So when we come to him, we come not fearful, but confident and humble, saying, Father, please, I've done some things wrong. Don't punish me the way I deserve. And he shows us grace. And lastly, we pray, please protect us from evil. Verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Fathers protect their kids from evil. That's what they do. Kids rely on their fathers to protect them. I was reminded of a story this week from one of my friends uh, from seminary, and I emailed him to make sure I got it right. And so I'll just let let him tell you this story in his own words. His name is Brian. He says, I'm riding my bike. The neighbor kid was in seventh grade. I was in second grade. He has a high-powered hose that he's watering plants with. And he sees me coming along and just blasts me. So I wreck my bike. I scrape my knees. I'm in the middle of the neighborhood street crying and sort of shocked. Brian says, my dad was watching from the backyard. He saw the whole thing. He leapt over the four-foot fence and sprinted over to the kid, put his knee in his chest, and yelled, Don't you ever do that to my son again. And Brian says, second grade Brian, sitting there in the middle of the street, says, I remember I stopped crying. And I just looked and I thought, wow, he's going to keep me safe. I felt really good after that. I rode home and he washed my wounds and put a Band-Aid on. That's what dads do. We could quibble over the extremity of the response. But that's what dads do. They protect their kids. And that's what our Heavenly Father does. So we pray to Him and we say, Father, please protect us from evil. Protect us from the evil that is inside of us. Right? Lead us not into temptation. Please protect me from me that I would not get sucked into temptation and go down these self-destructive paths. And protect us from the evil outside of us that Satan and his children would not hurt us. Say, Father, protect us from evil. The Lord's Prayer may be so familiar to you that it it seems dry and formal, but it's just a kid talking to his dad, asking him for help. And this is one of the truly great gifts of being a Christian, that we have a real relationship with God. But the one who made the universe is also our Father. And He invites us to grow in that relationship by praying to Him, not 
not with a fake relationship, not just mechanically trying to get something from him as we put in the right things, but like a child. He invites us to pray like this, and please bow your heads as I pray. Father, please let everybody know that you are the world's greatest dad. Please bring more and more people into your family every day. Please give us what we need. And please don't punish us like we deserve. And protect us from evil. In the name of Jesus, amen.